Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And we have a pretty big day in the Epic versus Apple. I think we can only call it a saga at this point. 57 videos when this one is uploaded in our an antitrust epic playlist. And if you aren't familiar with what has happened here, we'll be going over it in terms of an Apple document that was filed yesterday. But long story short, Epic put some payment options in Fortnite that went against the rules provided by both Apple and Google with respect to their Google Play Store. Fortnite gets removed. Epic had set a trap and launched federal lawsuits for violations of antitrust laws against both parties, Google and Apple. Apple's case was then expedited. Google's is still pending and ongoing and was ultimately decided just a little while ago, predominantly in favor of Apple. Apple was found not to be a monopolist, not to be violating any antitrust laws, either at the federal or state level. But Apple did lose one important piece of the pie. So when I did my analysis of the court's decision, I said, I think it's likely that both parties are going to appeal because both are affected. Epic has already appealed, which you can see us discuss in our Epic versus Apple appealing an Apple win video. But just like that appeal, we don't actually have a lot of information about what Apple or Epic intends to bring before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. You just have to file a notice to get this process started. And then you're running on a timer that says, I have to file a brief, which will be much more formal. And we'll be analyzing those in virtual legality as well. The difference, however, here is that Apple has an injunction that they have to worry about. The court in their court case said, Apple, you aren't allowed to have one specific sentence in your app store guidelines. And that sentence is as follows. Apps and their metadata may not include buttons, external links, or other calls to action that direct customers to purchasing mechanisms other than in-app purchase. So the court said you are enjoined from having this provision. The court also said you're enjoined from having a different provision about essentially communicating outside of the app. But as we talked about when we talked about the case itself, Apple has already moved to change that. In fact, they testified in the trial that they don't enforce it that way, which isn't great. And I don't think that was a good position for Apple to have. Well, yes, it's in the rules, but we don't enforce it the way you might read it as a normal human being. But in between all of that, they also settled a class action with developers. And one of the settlement terms was to change all of that, to specifically allow email communications, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll be focusing only on this sentence. Now, if you look at this, you might note it doesn't say anything about whether or not you can have your own store, whether or not you can have your own in-app payment processing. And the reason for that is because the court did find that Apple was justified in maintaining its own store exclusively, maintaining its own processing exclusively. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, the journalistic outlets, like we talked about in prior videos in this series, decided to report on this as a massive epic win and a significant change for Apple and their ecosystem, even though the court didn't do that. And that's important. A lot of the reporting here was just wrong. And the court was very careful to try to say, we're just getting rid of this concept, this anti-steering provision, and we are not intending to upturn the Apple cart, no pun intended, and make them change everything about the way they do business. In fact, that wrongful reporting and the way Tim Sweeney has been tweeting about it is going to be part of Apple's case in what I think is a pretty interesting way. So let's take a look at Apple's document itself. So first, we see that Apple Inc. is hereby moving the court to stay the September 10th, 2021 permanent injunction. Now, importantly, in terms of process here, 
This is a document that Apple is filing with the Northern District of California at the trial court level asking for that stay because at the same time, they're filing an appeal with the Circuit Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So this is aimed at the trial court, says, hey, look, we're going to go through this process. Please stay your injunction and we're going to give you a bunch of reasons why, 24 pages or so of reasons. We're going to hopefully be summarizing that a little bit, but a lot of what Apple says here is really, really useful to analyzing what they intend to bring in the Court of Appeals and also how they intend to defend certain aspects of the court case that they won with what they expect Epic will use on their behalf. So let's dive in. It says, Apple asks the court to suspend the requirements of its injunction until the appeals filed by both Epic and Apple have been resolved. The company understands and respects the court's concerns regarding communications between developers and consumers. Apple is carefully working through many complex issues across a global landscape, seeking to enhance information flow while protecting both the efficient functioning of the App Store and the security and privacy of Apple's customers. Striking the right balance may solve the court's concerns, making the injunction and perhaps even Apple's appeal itself unnecessary. A stay is warranted in these circumstances. So that's the first paragraph, the thing that jumps off the page, what you really want to hit the court with. And basically what they're saying is, look, this is complex stuff. Even though you argued in your decision that this wouldn't change much. First, it will. Second, we're also going to talk about the fact that Epic and other developers and folks in the outside ecosystem think that you did more than you said you did. And that's going to be a problem for us as well. It says, based on the robust record, the court issued a detailed 185-page opinion. Don't I know it? That's how you get a two-and-a-half-hour YouTube video. Concluding that Epic failed to prove that Apple violated any federal or state antitrust law. On Epic's 10th claim, the court concluded that Apple's so-called anti-steering provisions, two sentences in the App Store review guidelines that restrict in-app and targeted out-of-app communications regarding alternative payment options, are contrary to California's unfair competition law, which will be referred to in this document as the UCL. Epic barely mentioned that claim during the trial and offered no evidence that it was harmed by the anti-steering provisions. While recognizing that the trial record was less than fulsome, the court concluded that the anti-steering provisions are unfair under the UCL. Now, what's interesting about this document, taking a step back, is that here Apple is talking to the court about the decision the court rendered, right? This is just to the judge. And so they have to walk a fine line between trying to say, here's how you screwed up, your honor, and also here's how you can fix it. And that's always going to be a little bit difficult because it's not easy to put together a 185-page document. The court did a pretty good job on most points. As we mentioned when we talked about the decision, this UCL stuff is a little bit more amorphous, not really as a result of the court, but because the California law itself is so amorphous. You can punish things that are unfair. Good luck, Your Honor. And the court took up that particular call to action. Now, we also noted that, as Apple knows, the function of all of this in practical terms, not just legal terms, is that the court didn't much like Apple, didn't much like the way it was behaving. This was rendered in a lot of different ways in both the trial itself and in the decision, especially in footnote form, if you want to check out those. And it was also apparent that the court was looking to give some kind of win or at least a whap on the nose to Apple. And it was focusing in as the trial went along on these anti-steering provisions. And this was the way the court found itself able to do that. They called what Apple was doing incipient violations of antitrust law. Not quite violations, not there yet, not unlawful, but 
has the feeling of maybe being unlawful soon. And they use some of the terminology in that unfair competition law to hit Apple on this score. Apple, of course, doesn't like that. And now that Epic has said we're going to go through the process of appealing, Apple says, okay, well, if we're going to be in the Ninth Circuit anyway, we might as well try to get rid of this. Apple says they are likely to succeed on appeal. Epic's theory of liability under the UCL cannot be reconciled with the findings and conclusions the court made elsewhere in its opinion, particularly in recognizing the pro-competitive justifications for Apple's IAP requirement. Epic will suffer no harm from a stay from pausing your injunction because, as authorized by the court's decision, Apple recently rejected Epic's request to reinstate its developer program account, and Epic has no live apps on the App Store and thus no standing to enforce the injunction. Indeed, because Epic continues to seek broader relief, including an injunction against Apple's IAP requirement, it would be more prudent to wait and see how the appeals are decided before requiring Apple to implement any changes to the App Store. This is all the summary introduction. We're going to see this more fulsomely described in the rest of the document. But there are important things here, and you can see one that I've highlighted in red. Epic will suffer no harm from a stay because Apple recently rejected Epic's request to reinstate its developer program account, and Epic doesn't work with Apple anymore. And we'll see this in a pretty big section of this document, and I think it's a good argument, although if you think Apple's a slippery actor, a bad actor, you're probably not going to be so inclined to see it Apple's way because you think, well, Apple's essentially playing God here by saying, okay, Epic, you're not going to be invited back, and now we can go tell the court that this doesn't affect you at all. That said, it didn't affect Epic from the start of this thing. If you recall, Apple won its preliminary injunction to kick Epic off the store, to kick Fortnite off the store, and only wasn't allowed to touch Unreal. They are now allowed to touch Unreal, and it's unclear whether they will deign to do so as part of this. But standing as a concept is important in the law. We'll see it referenced in this document, but long story short, a court can only address what is sitting before it. And so in the United States, if you win your case, the court can make you whole, can give you a remedy, can do something for you. It really isn't supposed to, in most circumstances, just give remedies out to anybody else that might be affected by the legal argument that you brought. This is made even more problematic when the one party that can't get any benefit from this is the one that ostensibly is the one you're trying to remedy. So Epic brings this case. Epic gets kicked off the store. Epic loses on the breach of contract, on the antitrust issues. So it remains off the store. And now the court gives an injunction that doesn't just quote unquote benefit Epic as the plaintiff of the case, but purports to govern Apple's operations around the country, benefiting essentially every developer except Epic. So Apple says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not allowed to just make rhetorical concepts and say, this is unfair and I'm going to enjoin this to help other people. How does it help Epic specifically? And there, Epic would have a problem, I think, in arguing the point. Now let's talk about that background we were mentioning earlier. It says, although referenced only obliquely in Epic's complaint, Epic challenged the so-called anti-steering provisions in the App Store review guidelines, which generally prohibit developers from including external links, buttons, or other calls to action in an app directing the user to an alternative payment platform, and, as we said, using information collected within the app to communicate with customers outside the app. Importantly, Epic's challenge to those provisions did not stand alone, but instead was intertwined with its allegations that the IAP requirement was an anti-competitive restraint, and that in-app payment functionality was tied to app distribution, which the court properly rejected. And this is a little bit more 
technical in terms of legality here, but Apple is bringing up a good point. Apple is saying, well, look, Epic brought this case against our store and against our payment processing and then tied some other stuff to it. It really didn't argue for just kicking out the anti-steering provisions, and I think that's a fair complaint. But again, you're telling this to the court that made the decision, and we know why the court made that decision. It didn't like the way Apple was behaving. It doesn't like the 30% commission. It just wasn't argued as anti or super competitive by Epic. They didn't argue about changing the number. They didn't argue about the specifics there. They argued about wanting to have their own store and wanting to process separately from Apple. And the court really had a problem finding for Epic on that score. Continuing, it says, in its analysis, the court recognized that Apple legitimately monetized its platform by requiring use of IIP for in-app purchases of digital goods. Acknowledging that the record was less fulsome, however, the court separately addressed Apple's anti-steering provisions under the UCL. Although the court concluded none of the contractual provisions Epic breached, one of which was 3.11's restriction on links and buttons, was unlawful, the court concluded that Apple's anti-steering provisions are, quote-unquote, unfair within the meaning of the UCL. The basis for the court's ruling was the concern about open flow of information. The court reasoned that with a more open flow, users could more easily discover the lowest cost seller. Now there, I think Apple is probably going a step too far. If you go and you read this 185-page decision, you start talking about this injunction, the part that Epic wins, you will see a court that is very unhappy with 30% as the rate for the commission. A court that views that 30% as potentially something that is really just a result of Apple's market power and not competitive forces acting on Apple. And once you reach that kind of conclusion as the court, what it's trying to say is that if you can't tell people about lower rates, which aren't supra competitive, then you are essentially acting as an almost monopolist and an almost violator of antitrust laws. Again, the court's reaching here, but using its equitable powers to do so and telling the court that, oh, you were only concerned about the open flow of information is perhaps not terribly accurate, especially when the court itself was the one making the determination in the first place. Continuing with Apple's argument, the injunctive relief applies not just to Epic, which cannot even benefit from the injunction because it has no developer program account with Apple or any live apps on the App Store, but to all developers in the United States. Following the court's decision, Mr. Sweeney stated publicly that Fortnite will return to the iOS App Store when and where Epic can offer in-app payment in fair competition with Apple, in-app payment passing along the savings to the consumer. He continued, thinking much more about whether we're going to live in a world where two platform megacorps dictate software and world commerce to everyone, or whether the digital world and the future metaverse will be a free world. Wouldn't trade that away to get Fortnite back on iOS. Now, if those strike you as familiar, we've covered, I think, both of those tweets here in virtual legality. But it's important to note that those are, in fact, tweets. As we mentioned, there's a reason, in general, that you get legal advice if you're running a big company or even a small one that says don't litigate the issues on Twitter, on social media, in public emails, whatever else it might be. Because for the most part, you might get a small endorphin rush from fighting your fight in public. But when you see them brought up in legal documents, you're going to understand why they cause problems. And here, what Apple is saying, which is the same thing that they said when they rejected Fortnite's reintroduction to the iOS ecosystem, is that Tim Sweeney and Epic are projecting to the world that they don't intend to abide by anything, that they're wildcard actors. And since they were already determined by the court to be wildcard actors, that the way that they did their quote-unquote Project Liberty was surreptitious and potentially problematic in and of itself, this is a pretty easy argument for Apple to make. 
say, based on these and other statements, which make clear that Epic has no intention of complying with Apple's guidelines, notwithstanding any protestations to the contrary, Apple advised Epic that it would not be reinstating Epic's developer account for the Fortnite app, and we filed our cross-appeal on October 8th, 2021. In terms of additional background, Apple wants to tell the court, hey, we're working on this. Even before the court's decision in Epic, Apple began exploring changes to the guidelines applicable to developer consumer communications. As detailed in the Cameron settlement, Apple has agreed, among other things, to permit all U.S. developers to communicate with their customers via email and other communication services outside their app about purchasing methods other than in-app purchase, provided that the customer consents to the communication and has the right to opt out. This is part of that big settlement, the class action that Epic refused to join because it wanted to go its own way and that the court commented on in a number of places throughout the temporary restraining order, preliminary injunction, and trial court phases where they said, Epic, we don't know why you needed to rush to the courthouse. We don't know why you needed to do this surreptitious stuff. We are actually working through a class action right now. And the answer to that is that Epic didn't trust the class, didn't trust them to not make some kind of settlement that they would be unhappy with. And to some extent, I don't blame Epic. We talked about the Cameron settlement in this space and how at the end of the day, Apple really didn't give up very, very much at all under that particular settlement document. So Epic wanted to fight a little bit more strongly and fight they did, even though they lost the case at the trial court level. So now Apple gets to the legalities here. They say, look, trial court, you should stay. You should pause your injunction because it will ultimately have us win the case. We will be irreparably injured if you don't pause that injunction. It won't injure somebody else interested in the proceeding, and the public interest would also see you pause that injunction. And those are the standards that they put forth, as you can see on your screen, as how you should analyze a stay at the trial court level. Discussion. The court's injunction is in two parts, precluding Apple from enforcing the guideline prohibition against links, buttons, or other calls to action, and the guideline prohibition against targeted communications outside the app. Apple has already addressed targeted out-of-app communications in the Cameron settlement, which will result in the deletion of the clause that the court has enjoined, as to in-app communications, the injunction requires Apple to strike the call to action provision, but does not prevent the adoption of a solution that would result in enhanced information flow between developers and consumers while still constraining those communications in appropriate ways to preserve the integrity of the ecosystem. Such a solution, however, is technologically and economically complex and requires consideration of events on the global stage. So they say, okay, we understand that you have a concern with the anti-steering provision, and Apple is essentially signaling to the court here that we're going to handle that, but it's pretty complex, both in how we implement it at the app level, how we implement it at the practical level, what our guidelines look like, how it's going to affect our commission and everything else. And so we would ask the court to stay this while we figure it out. If you want to make this a long story short, they could also be saying effectively here, 90 days is not enough to make these kinds of sweeping changes if they are in fact sweeping changes to our ecosystem. Now they start when they're talking about this day with that irreparable harm concept. It says Apple would be irreparably harmed in the absence of a stay. If we have to go through with this on that 90 day window, we are gonna hurt ourselves, our ecosystem, our product, etc. It says absent a stay, Apple would be forced to permit developers to engage in conduct that will disrupt Apple's lawful app store business model. While Apple is taking steps to increase the flow of information from developers to consumers, some developers, including Epic, misread the injunction to permit unconstrained in-app messaging or links. 
Mr. Sweeney has touted an expansive view of the court's injunction that not only would require Apple to allow links directing customers to developers' websites, but apparently also would permit developers to install competing payment mechanisms such as the one implemented by Epic's hotfix at the culmination of Project Liberty, notwithstanding that the court held Epic liable for breach of contract as a result of that hotfix. To be clear, Apple disagrees with this broad interpretation of the injunction, but Epic's apparent endorsement of this view threatens Apple's ability to operate its platform. At least one other developer has already publicly announced its intention to offer an alternative payment system for digital goods and service transactions within iOS apps. Now, if you aren't familiar with this story, this was actually flagged for me before Apple filed its appeal. It's a service called Paddle. And a few days ago, they put up a blog post that says what Epic versus Apple means for software as a service. The outcome of the Epic Games versus Apple lawsuit, if upheld, clears the way for SaaS businesses and iOS developers alike to finally seize the App Store opportunity in earnest, written by the CEO. And we scroll down and we scroll down. It says, what happened? What went down between Epic and Apple? It says, the court case concluded in early September 2021, and the verdict, Wired explains. And here's the Wired quote that this particular blog post uses. While the court ruled in Apple's favor on eight of nine counts, it ordered Apple to remove restrictions banning developers from linking to alternate payment systems in their apps, a move that will, in turn, let them dodge Apple's much-criticized 30% commission as well as the total dominance the App Store has over gaming on iOS. And here's where that poor reporting rubber hits the road. And this is not me trying to get on the case of journalists. This is tough stuff. But I really feel that reporting on it in this way, wrongly, is affecting folks that are making development decisions, including Paddle. I don't really blame Paddle for looking at all of these particular reports and saying, hey, if that's in fact the case, let me build something. And lo, Paddle has built something. It says, boost revenue with Paddle in-app purchase. The Epic Games versus Apple verdict clears the way for app creators to choose an alternative to Apple's payment system and its 15 to 30% fee. Paddle in-app purchases will let app creators replace Apple's in-app purchase without worrying about any of that. When selling with Paddle, your apps stay on the App Store, but we make the sale just like Apple would at a different percentage take here. And so Apple brings this up to say, look, Court, you didn't say that at all. In fact, you said basically the opposite. They're going to bring up a bunch of quotes that we talked about here in virtual legality that says, hey, when the court found that we win on all of these counts, that we can enforce exclusivity of our store, we can enforce exclusivity of IAP. Unfortunately, what you did here by just taking that one sentence and enjoining us from using it has been interpreted wrongly by a lot of folks. And that needs to be stayed, not because you necessarily did anything wrong, Your Honor, but because... A lot of people are interpreting what you did in a manner that we don't believe you intended. And certainly, I don't believe the court intended either. Said the court has stricken one sentence of guideline 3.1.1, but did not disable Apple from otherwise running its business or protecting consumers. The approach advocated by Epic and others will disrupt the optimal balance between the two sides of the App Store platform. This is important in light of the Supreme Court's recognition that such balance is essential for two-sided platforms to maximize the value of their services and to compete with their rivals. Simply put, steering users to other payment solutions undermines the promise of a frictionless transaction and undermines the investments that Apple has made to encourage increased customer spending on its platform. 
And in that particular paragraph, they're quoting from a case, American Express, that we're going to talk about a little bit more fulsomely as we move on with this analysis, because the court also looked at American Express and distinguished it for purposes of putting forth its injunction. So probably American Express is not a great precedent for Apple to be using here to the trial court itself, but what we're getting here is a preview of how Apple might intend to otherwise ask for this stay or ask for its appeal at that Ninth Circuit level. Apple continues, the court expressly found that Apple is entitled to collect a commission from developers for use of its platform regardless of whether that commission is collected through IAP. And I've highlighted that in red because so, so, so many people have missed this concept that Apple has a contract right to collect its commission for the use of its intellectual property, for appearance on its store, for the access to its digital store shelves that the court reaffirmed throughout the first 160 some odd pages of its court decision. And by reaffirming it, it should have been clear to everybody reading this particular decision that Apple was allowed to go find a way to get that money. As they quote, to the extent Epic Games suggests that Apple received nothing from in-app purchases made on its platform, such a remedy is inconsistent with prevailing intellectual property law. As the court recognized, payment methods that avoid IAP make it more difficult for Apple to collect that commission. And it further acknowledged that if Apple could no longer require developers to use IAP for digital transactions, Apple's competitive advantage on security issues in the broad sense would be undermined and ultimately could decrease consumer choice in terms of smartphone devices and hardware. Now here you'll see Apple kind of flip the situation on its head a little bit and not in a way that's going to be terribly useful for internet discourse on this subject. One of the things that people come and ask me about is, well, okay, if you go and you send somebody off the app, they collect their money and they come back. How does Apple know what money was spent? How do they know these things? And as I said, like the court did in its decision, well, when you don't collect the money and you're otherwise owed a royalty or a commission or some other contractual term, then what you do is you set up a reporting requirement. You go and you ask the other party to tell you what money was made. And if there's a problem there, then that can be a breach of contract in and of itself. There can be penalties. There can be other things that attach to that. And so it's not impossible to do this kind of thing. In fact, the common sample that I use to explain that is Epic's own Unreal license, where they don't collect the money directly from you selling a video game using Unreal. They ask you to report to them what money you collected and to remit to them the money that they are owed. So Apple is capable of doing this, but as part of this kind of document where they're seeking a stay, they want to make it seem almost impossible. So much like internet discourse, they're going to suggest that this document is very, very difficult. Look, court, your honor, you already said this is going to add friction. It's going to be more difficult for us to get the money. And so you should stay your injunction because in the rest of the document, you said we're owed that money. So we've got a problem here with what you decided to implement. Continuing. When considering the appropriateness of an injunction against allegedly anti-competitive conduct, courts must be cognizant of the fact that costs associated with ensuring compliance with judicial decrees may exceed efficiencies gained. The decrees themselves may unintentionally suppress pro-competitive innovation. And there they're quoting Alston, the NCAA case we also talked about this summer, and one that has proven particularly useful to Apple because in that case, the Supreme Court came down very hard on a very unsympathetic plaintiff in the NCAA and said a lot of things that were significantly broader than you might otherwise find in antitrust jurisprudence. And they said it on a 9-0 unanimous basis. So Apple is using this kind of language to say, look, this is what the Supreme Court tells you to take into account. 
Suffice it to say, IAP is not merely a payment processing system, as Epic Games suggests, but a comprehensive system to collect commission and manage in-app payments. That's a quote directly from the court's decision. Permitting developers to steer users to other payment mechanisms undermines the investments that Apple has made in IAP, which discourages investments in IAP and ultimately harms both users and developers. IAP offers a number of protections for consumers, such as those against fraudulent transactions. Their effectiveness depends in part on information Apple receives through IAP. So Apple's making a different case. It says, look, court, you found that our security justifications are legitimate, they are pro-competitive, that they defeat the rule of reason, that Epic wasn't able to significantly fight against them. And then in the second half of your document, or really the last little part of it, you say, ah, forget it, links are okay. And we're saying, well, look, part of our process is information that we're now losing with that links concept. Apple also says an erroneously broad interpretation of the injunction would also impair Apple's ability to protect the iOS ecosystem and cause other irremediable harms. Links and buttons to alternate payment mechanisms are fraught with risks. Users who click on a payment link embedded in the app, particularly one distributed through the curated app store, will expect to be led to a web page where they can securely provide their payment information, email address, or other personal information. And while developers are required to disclose their handling of users' privacy information within the app, there is no way for Apple to confirm that a developer's payment page will adhere to those representations. Now, if you look at that paragraph and say, yeah, okay, we fully expected that Apple will throw up a blocker page or something that says, you're leaving our ecosystem, understand, very dangerous, skull and crossbones, skull and crossbones, and they might well do that. We would expect them to do that. But it's also worth noting as part of this that Epic is currently in a lawsuit with Google and their Google Play Store for making sideloading too problematic, too frictionful, because there are so many security windows. So Apple, which they'll mention as part of this document, is also cognizant of the fact that however they might implement this, it would almost certainly engender a new lawsuit, especially from Epic. Continuing, Apple has no visibility into their technological and financial functions, those external links, and limited ability to redress fraud by identifying and removing bad actors from the App Store. While Apple could examine the links in the version of the app submitted for review, there is nothing stopping a developer from changing the landing point for that link or altering the content of the destination web page. In essence, the introduction of external payment links, particularly without sufficient time to test and evaluate the security implications, will lead to the very same security concerns that Apple combats with the use of IAP more generally, which the court agreed were legitimate pro-competitive reasons for the design of the App Store. Finally, implementation of the injunction would require substantial technical and engineering changes. Beyond the mere functionality of permitting external payment links, Apple would have to develop technical solutions to address the security and privacy vulnerabilities addressed above. And Apple would have to engineer alternative solutions for collecting its commission and undertaking the court acknowledged could be costly. Once Apple invests these resources, it will not be able to recover them if the injunction ultimately is overturned on appeal, even in part. Now, in this paragraph, we again have a recitation of some of the most important concepts here and some of those important concepts that were just flat out missed by the journalistic outlets that reported on this. Most specifically, that we are entitled as Apple to collect our commission. And while it would be easier for us to continue doing it the way we were doing it, we get the money, we take our cut, we distribute the rest. The fact that you get the money doesn't change the fact that you now owe us our cut and can keep the rest. So when you talk about all these things, when you think about them, when you see reporting, feel bad for the paddles of the world, feel bad for that video game developer 
that's going to try to put in their own in-app payment processing because they think that's what the court said they could do. Even the trial court didn't say that was allowed, regardless of how this injunction finishes up. Now, I do think Apple probably oversells its point here in terms of resources, both in how difficult and expensive it would be, and also that it in and of itself constitutes irreparable injury. In general, when we're talking about things of an equitable nature, whether it's injunctions or stays or what have you, money damages are not irreparable. You make this change, well, then we can make it better with money. That said, we don't actually have an understanding of what this will cost on the whole for the ecosystem. Apple going in and breaking its own store is going to cost something. Whether or not that's security, like Apple alleges, whether or not it's just trust and faith, understandability, likability, whatever it might be, it's going to change something. If Apple wanted to do this, they would have done it already. If they're ordered by a court to do it, it is going to alter the functionality of their ecosystem. From the Epic side, in a manner that developers feel would be justified and helpful to them, from the Apple side, in a manner that they think would break what it is that they have built. Now Apple talks about their appeal, right? One of those factors that we mentioned above was not just we're going to be irreparably harmed if you don't pause this. It's also, hey, we're likely to win our case, right? We go and we ask for a stay on the injunction because we're likely to win this thing when we go up the ladder to the Ninth Circuit. Now, again, this is Apple talking to the court that already made the decision against it on this particular point. So this is more of a preview for how this will look at the Ninth Circuit than it is something that's likely to be terribly convincing to the trial court itself. It says, in Apple's view, the court's ruling on Epic's UCL claim cannot be reconciled with the findings and inclusions on others' theories. Apple's cross-appeal will ask the Ninth Circuit to set aside the UCL judgment or vacate the injunction on several grounds. First, there is no UCL violation. There is a substantial case that Epic failed to prove a violation of the UCL. The imposition of liability under the tethering test, and we won't go into the specifics here, but that's the test that the court used in their particular analysis, is wrong as a matter of law. I'm sure your honor loves that. The tethering test requires that the plaintiff prove that the conduct at issue is anti-competitive, i.e. that it significantly threatens or harms competition. Now note, I highlighted the word threatens here because I think Apple goes too far with this argument. They say that is true whether the conduct is denominated as an incipient antitrust violation or as a violation of the policy or spirit of the antitrust laws. As noted in Celtech, the focus of the antitrust laws is on injury to competition. To come within the letter of policy of these laws, it must be alleged that defendant's conduct had an adverse effect on competition. Now that's a pretty good quote, but as it stands, significantly threatening competition is different than significantly harming competition. And to the extent that threatens is included in that, and I'm no California lawyer, and maybe a California lawyer that regularly does UCL stuff can put up a YouTube video that talks about this specific point. But if threatens is included in the concept, then an incipient violation is a threat to competition. And by telling the court this, I think Apple probably presses a little too hard on this point. They continue with another quote, says, in order to allege under UCL tethering test that conduct significantly threatens or harms competition, a plaintiff must allege harm to the market as a whole. However, when evaluating Apple's anti-steering provisions under the UCL, the court looked to the purported effects of those provisions without any reference to any defined market. For example, the court considered anecdotal evidence from DownDog and Match Group regarding their experience with off-platform purchase mechanisms, even though neither of them is a game developer. The court did not define the market in which it was analyzing these purported competitive effects. This is especially pertinent 
Given that Epic itself admitted that relief from the anti-steering provisions that would allow links or buttons to alternative payment solutions outside an app would be affirmatively harmful to game developers in particular. And then Apple pulls this quote, mobile game developers particularly value the ability to provide users with engaging gameplay without imposing any burdens or distractions on consumers who wish to make in-app purchases. Developers would be harmed if their app users were directed to purchase, process their purchases outside of the app. Now here, I think Apple's just straight up lying, right? And for those of you that come into this and say, oh, I'm anti-Epic, I'm pro-Apple, all these various other things, for the most part, I'm pro following the law and presenting good, clean arguments to the court so that the court can make good, clean decisions based on those arguments and the precedents before it. What Apple has done here is said, okay, it's not a violation of the UCL, that's probably stretching it. You didn't define the market, Your Honor, and that's probably true. The court actually has a very short section there that says, well, we were looking at mobile gaming apps, but we see no reason why this shouldn't apply to all apps in your ecosystem. And it's not great from the court, right? It's amorphous, like we talked about with all the UCL jurisprudence, because it's effectively an equ equitable action by the court based on her own judgment of things. But it also leaves you wanting, what is the definition here? How did you arrive at this decision? And we understand that practically speaking, it was because she wanted to whap Apple on the nose for something, even though she was going to give the case pre predominantly to them. But Apple brings up a good point on the market question. Where they immediately lose all the points they just gained is with this notion that they said, well, game developers will be harmed by this. This is especially pertinent given that Epic itself admitted relief from the anti-steering provisions that would allow links to, uh, to or buttons to alternative payment solutions would be affirmatively harmful is in the nature of being forced to only use those things. It's harmful to them that they don't get a button directly in the store, that they can't have Epic Direct Pay just under Apple IAP showing the price and sending folks directly in the app. It is most certainly not harmful as an addition to the tools in the game developer or other developers tool belt. And this quote doesn't suggest as much. The quote they use, mobile game developers particularly value the ability to provide users with engaging gameplay without imposing any burdens. Developers would be harmed if their app users were directed to process their purchases outside of the app is just not accurate. It's taken out of context in a way that when I look at it, it says, oh, Apple, what the hell are you doing? And it makes me immediately question the stuff immediately before, the stuff immediately after. And here's the instance, just like when Epic overreached, where I think Apple is overreaching here. Does it matter? No, probably not. They're probably going to get this stay for reasons we'll get to at the end of this video. But it is the kind of thing where I say, oh, come on, Apple. Even your quote doesn't say what you say it says. Beyond the lack of a cognizable market in which to evaluate the anti-steering provisions, there is a substantial case that Epic failed to prove the anti-steering provisions have anti-competitive effects. The testimony from Match Group's representative that in-app sales have continued to dominate, notwithstanding the firm's investment in marketing campaigns for web purchases, does not prove anti-competitive effects flowing from the anti-steering provisions. And the competitive effects of the anti-steering provisions as distinguished from all other effects of the iOS's platform design were never independently analyzed from an economic perspective. And Apple's right here. This was never the focus of the case, so Epic didn't even bring experts and folks to testify to this fact that would be significant for purposes of the court finding a competitive problem here. So Apple's right because of the way the trial court went. They didn't really have enough evidence or documentation to talk about the anti-competitive effects of this particular provision. The court distinguished Amex on the ground that Apple's anti-steering provisions are more akin to a prohibition on letting users know that other options exist in the first place. So here we're gonna take a sidestep. 
because as I promised, we need to understand that Amex decision and what the court said about it. I've pulled up, I believe it's a page 166 of the court's original decision, and there the court talks about the American Express case. It says, in Amex, American Express prohibited merchants from dissuading customers from using Amex cards as a way of avoiding its merchant fees. So Amex has a policy that has them paying more merchant fees, a higher percentage of their own take to Amex when you use an Amex card. It did so because merchants would often advertise Amex acceptance to attract users who used the American Express Rewards Program, but then would steer them towards cards with lower merchant fees, such as Visa or MasterCard. I don't know the numbers here, but if you pretend Amex charges 6%, Visa MasterCard charges 3%, you have the sign that says, we accept American Express, that you get those American Express people in there, and then you say, at the point of sale, hey, whoa, you should really use Visa or MasterCard. That would be better for you. And it would make the, the retailer more money. So Amex says in their contract on these things, you can't do that. You can't tell folks that. So the court found that there was not anti-competitive because this was strong evidence of pro-competitive effects. And perhaps most importantly, anti-steering provisions do not prevent Visa, MasterCard, or Discover from competing against Amex by offering lower merchant fees or promoting their broader merchant acceptance. Here, the court says... The information base is distinctly different. In retail brick and mortar stores, consumers do not lack knowledge of options. They know that Visa and MasterCard and American Express all exist. Technology platforms differ. Apple created a new and innovative platform, which was also a black box. It enforced silence to control information and actively impede users from obtaining the knowledge to obtain digital goods on other platforms. Thus, the closer analogy is not American Express's prohibiting steering towards Visa or MasterCard, but a prohibition on letting users know that these options exist in the first place. And I think the court has a very good point here. Apple disagrees, as they are wont to do. It says, this court distinguished Amex on the ground that Apple's anti-steering provisions are more akin to a prohibition on letting users know that other options exist in the first place, but Apple does allow developers to let users know about alternative payment platforms. The anti-steering provisions simply prohibit developers from using Apple's platform and resources to do so. Apple's argument is, as we've talked about before, that I don't have to advertise for my competitor's store on my store shelves kind of concept. And the court dismisses that in its own decision saying basically, well, that's just you arguing that you should have the right to do this, but I'm saying your 30% is super competitive. You got that 30% by essentially creating a black box that nobody is allowed to tell anybody else about. And so I'm going to break down the walls of communication. I don't think Apple has a particularly strong argument with Amex to this judge. They might find better argumentation, someone that is more sympathetic to that particular avenue at the Ninth Circuit. But as it stands right now, I think the court probably has the better part of it. Second, Epic lacks standing to enforce that UCL injunction. Epic Games Inc., the sole plaintiff in this lawsuit, lacks standing under Article 3. That's Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution. To have standing, the plaintiff must show that it has suffered an actual or threatened injury. Two, that that injury can be fairly traced to the challenged action of the defendant. And three, that the injury is likely to be redressed by a favorable decision. Moreover, a plaintiff must establish injury to himself, even if it is an injury shared by a large class of other possible litigants. So here, Apple is saying that whether or not our 3.1.1 language affects every developer in the United States was not a case or controversy before the court. And if Epic had wanted to fight that fight, they could have certified a class action. They didn't. 
So all that was before the court was how to make Epic whole. It says whether or not Epic had standing at some earlier stage of the litigation, at this time, Epic cannot show that it faces a real or immediate threat of irreparable injury from the anti-steering provisions or that the injunction entered by the court would redress any such injury. Epic also failed to prove any past injury from Apple's anti-steering provisions. Although the court credited evidence from witnesses associated with two other developers, Downdog and Match Group, an injury to other possible litigants is not sufficient for Article Three purposes. I think this is a pretty good argument that what the court did was not within its ambit, that the court used its equitable powers to enforce something that we know would never benefit Epic, or at least at this point will not, as Fortnite and Epic are not on the store. And the court in that same decision document was saying Apple is permitted to keep them off the store and to even kick off the Unreal developers if that is what Apple deigned to do. So Apple's argument here, I think, is pretty strong. This was not something that the court was permitted to do. And again, it's because the court wanted to do something because it really didn't like how Apple was behaving. Number three, the UCL injunction is beyond the equitable authority of the court. First, even if the provisions prohibiting in-app communications are deemed unfair under the UCL, there is no evidence and no findings by the court supporting the injunction with respect to striking Apple's guideline, prohibiting external links and buttons within an app. And this is an interesting argument that I hadn't really thought of. So the court really harps on that information concept that what it is having an issue with is the fact that Apple has created this black box. And as part of its rules said, you can't tell anybody else about anywhere else to get your stuff. So one, Apple says, okay, maybe we can change our communications. Maybe we can allow people to actually talk about things outside of the, the in-app purchase, call to action, language in your app description. But that doesn't have anything to do with buttons or links or actual mechanisms to move you out. It's, dis it's different, Apple argues, to say, hey, if you want to buy direct from us, we make a little bit more money, come to the website uh, and we'll sell our stuff to you and it'll work in this app uh, if you come by and, and check it out with us. Links are distinct. Links are buttons. Links are about accessibility, as they say. It says offering a link in an app has nothing to do with communication. It has to do with the accessibility of alternative payment mechanisms through iOS, Apple's intellectual property. Now, that's an interesting argument. However, I think it also calls into question exactly what Apple would do if this injunction were changed to just be communications. One of the things that I have said is that you can ask them to report the money that they make, but you don't actually have a right if you're Apple from money that they just make on the website independently. You have a right to some extent, and this is the kind of thing that Apple would work through, and it's the kind of thing that journalists missed when they talk about this case. You have a right to some extent for somebody that comes into your app, goes directly from your app to a purchasing mechanism, and comes back. It's exactly what Paddle is offering to do, right? Replace it, we'll do your selling, we'll send you right back into the app when we're done. And so that's exactly where Apple can easily say, okay, you can tell these people came directly from our app. We deserve our cut from that money. Give us our cut. If you separate that out, if it's somebody getting a message in app, you can't tell whether that came from the app, that came, that came from the email, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes a lot harder for Apple to collect its money. So it's an interesting argument because a different version of this that just talks about communication without links and buttons uh, becomes trickier for Apple to track, no doubt. Moreover, the court's analysis of the pro-competitive effects of IAP forecloses any claim that the prohibition on external payment links is anti-competitive. 
The same is true for external payment links. If developers can take users directly from the app to their own external payment mechanism, it will be difficult, if even feasible, for Apple to collect a commission for those purchases. As I said earlier in this video, one of the things that's happening here is that Apple is trying to convince the core that it's really, really hard to get that commission. And I think it's not that hard with links. It is a lot harder with just communication. But either way, Apple can enforce these contracts. Apple's a very big company. Apple can audit these things. Apple can check these things. It is just not as efficient. It doesn't make them as much money as it does to just have all the funds go through IAP. It says the court indicated when it made this injunction decision that the injury has occurred and continues, but this statement does not refer to any alleged injury to Epic and does not speak to whether the injury is irreparable. So here again, Apple is arguing that the court exceeded its powers because it isn't stating something that harms Epic. In addition, the court did not analyze Apple's equitable affirmative defense of unclean hands. The law loves these kinds of phrases. It says the doctrine of unclean hands precludes equitable relief, which is what an injunction is, where the defendant establishes that the plaintiff engaged in inequitable conduct and the conduct relates to the subject matter of its claims. The doctrine of unclean hands, says Apple, applies squarely here. Rather than file a lawsuit for declaratory and injunctive relief and await the outcome, Epic developed a sophisticated plan to surreptitiously deliver a Trojan horse update of Fortnite to Apple and then later activate a hotfix to bypass Apple's IAP system. Epic is a bad actor, your honor. You don't give injunctions to bad actors, especially when you can't find an injury to Epic and Epic's not going to benefit from these changes at all. Third, the injunction is overbroad in that it extends beyond Epic and affects all developers in the United States. Accordingly, injunctive relief may be no more burdensome to the defendant than necessary to provide complete relief to the plaintiffs. Here, the injunctive relief extends farther than necessary to remedy any conceivable harm to Epic. If Epic were in fact injured by the anti-steering provisions because of the limitations on its ability to communicate with customers, it would be made whole by an injunction prohibiting Apple from applying those limitations to Epic. In contrast, Epic receives no benefit from having those limitations lifted with respect to other developers. If Epic had intended to seek injunctive relief on behalf of other developers, it could have attempted to proceed under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23b2, which for purposes of this video, I will tell you is class actions in federal court to gather those developers and say, we're going to fight for this right for all developers. And Epic didn't decide to do so. Instead, Apple says Epic opted out of the developer class action, which is now settled, signifying its intent to proceed on its own and not on behalf of other developers. Mr. Sweeney testified, in fact, that Epic would have been content with a special deal for Epic and no other developers. So you see Apple spinning around this same kind of point that says, look, Your Honor, we understand. You don't like this term, and maybe you could have said something like that in your court decision, but as it relates to Epic, the case or controversy before you what you did doesn't change anything for them. They didn't prove they were harmed. Obviously, since they aren't on the store anymore, they can't show that this injunction helps them. So you've got a problem from a legal standing perspective. You've exceeded your authority, even under California law. It says the state will not injure Epic. There is no risk of harm to Epic if a stay is issued. As set forth above, Epic does not even have standing to obtain injunctive relief because it no longer has an active developer account and no longer has any apps on the App Store. Just as it cannot benefit from the injunction, it would not be harmed by the stay. And finally, in terms of that fourth factor, they talk about the public interest. As noted throughout the submission, Apple is carefully studying options to enhance user access to information while maintaining the integrity of its ecosystem. 
These issues require the application of business judgment informed by this court's analysis. Of course, Your Honor, we're very informed by your 185 pages. Apple's experience, feedback from developers and users across the world, as well as technological and economic considerations. Apple anticipates reaching a global solution and the public interest would be served by allowing Apple sufficient time to do so. Apple's effectively signaling to the court here that they understand that you don't like our anti-steering rules. We're gonna try to address this whole concept of communications in what they would hope to be the relatively near future. So you can stay this injunction because we're going to take care, care of it. Given the substantial likelihood that the UCL injunction will be vacated or reversed, it would be a poor use of resources to require Apple to comply with the injunction on the timeline ordered by the court and invite near inevitable litigation from Epic regarding the scope of Apple's compliance. On the other side of the ledger, Epic will be seeking more expansive injunction relief on appeal. While Apple is confident that the Sherman Act and Cartwright Act rulings will be sustained, we're, we're pretty sure you're right on everything but this point, Your Honor. It would be better for all participants in the iOS ecosystem to await the outcome of both appeals, Epic's and Apple's, before mandating changes to the App Store. And there again, whether or not that's public interest or Apple interest or what have you, I do think it makes sense as an argument. And this is why stays are very often granted as part of the appeals process, which is to say, well, until we solve this, until we sort this out from a legal perspective, we don't really want any of the parties to have to spend exorbitant amounts of money to change the way they do business, to ruin their own ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. Especially because as Apple points out, look, Epic's gonna be asking for more anyway. So let's not go through the cost and expense of trying to comply with this specific edict when that edict is likely to be changed at bare minimum in language. The Ninth Circuit isn't likely to agree entirely with exactly what you said. And while that process goes through, let's not go through the effort and expense of trying to fix things up for what is unlikely to be the final outcome of this case. And then finally, the reason they are very likely to get this, in my opinion, is this last. In the alternative, you don't buy any of the rest of that, Your Honor, then if the court determines that a stay pending appeal is inappropriate to be issued by you, Apple requests that the court temporarily stay enforcement of the injunction while Apple seeks a stay from the Ninth Circuit. Courts routinely grant such requests. And I, I think that is in fact the case. And there, Apple's saying, okay, we made our arguments to you. We understand. You're the trial court. You are unlikely to be swayed by our arguments on the merits. If you had been, you would have made a different decision over the summer. That's fine, Your Honor. But we are appealing this to the Ninth Circuit. What we would ask that you do is say, we are going to stay this injunction. We're going to wait on this. We're going to pause on all of this as you go and act for the Ninth Circuit to stay the injunction formally, probably with almost the exact same arguments that you make to them. And I think the court is likely, it's up to the judge, to issue an injunction on that score, to say, oh, or to issue a stay of her injunction on that score, which is to say, look, yeah, okay, go make your case to the Ninth Circuit. We don't want people doubling up. The Ninth Circuit will tell you what it is, and I will follow that when it happens. And I think at bare minimum, that's likely to be the case but it's still a useful document to start to get that contour of what Apple intends to present in its appeal, how Apple intends to defend certain parts of what the court found with respect to the anti-competition provisions. And when we get to the briefs, we'll get a little bit more. But at the end of the day, you saw what Apple intends to argue. This was a question that was asked to me a lot. You see that they intend to argue the court exceeded its jurisdiction. Epic isn't given redress by this at all. They don't have standing under the US Constitution, that the court didn't go through the right process to even talk about these specific issues. And I thought, interestingly, that what has been reported, what Tim Sweeney has helped foment, 
is in and of itself, according to Apple, a problem because the injunction, while trying to be felt by just saying, oh, you can't use this sentence, actually created a whole host of problems for Apple because it became more likely that however they would implement this, just saying, okay, fine, buttons and links or whatever are, are good and we weren't gonna do anything. However that were implemented, they would have to take action against the paddles of the world, against those folks that think that the court offered them more than the court actually did. And because of that threat, that risk of litigation, they feel that their stay is warranted because otherwise they could get themselves in a whole lot of trouble. At the end of the day then, it actually turns out that all those articles I quoted in my prior videos about how they were reporting things wrongly, how Tim Sweeney was messing with the stew by putting out social media posts, might ultimately be a foundational piece of the puzzle for how Apple gets out of the injunction at all. This has been Virtual Legality for today. Hopefully this was informative, educational, and interesting. If you like talking about the business and law of things like big technology, Apple, Epic, video games, pop culture, and more, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon. We've got other ways to support it listed in the description to this video or just subscribing, telling your friends, upvote, downvote, comment, sharing, telling folks we're having these conversations. Every little bit helps. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.